Let the boars and the deer and all those undeserving of life tremble at your name, Temujin. I don't know about this situation with Jamuk. Jamuk is my brother. I did what I had to do. If you're playing to win, bring your best pieces. But that's exactly what I'm doing. And toss the rest. Temujin, an audio drama. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Rashan is an internationally recognized scriptwriter and composer based in Singapore. He graduated from Yale NSU College with a degree in Arts and Humanities and was awarded the Class of 2018's Outstanding Capstone Project for the script of Temujin. His work showing showrunning Temujin and audio drama has been recognized at a number of prestigious award podcasts. Uh, uh, golly, a number of prestigious award <laughs> prestigious award processes, including the Webbies, the Audio Production Awards, and the Audioverse Awards. Following the successful launch, Rashan founded Andes Productions, dedicated to producing excellent audio fiction and games for a global audience. As a screenwriter, Rashan is co- currently work- working in a writer's room, adapting the triple Eisner winning The Art of Charlie Chan Huck Chai into an a- animated series. <laughs> that was painful, but... <laughs> I'm so sorry. Like, you you type these bios out and you never really realize that they're tongue twisters until you hear someone else say them. Um, It's all fine. It's early on my end. I don't think think my my mouth's all warmed up. How are you? How are you doing? That's great. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm having, I believe we have a 12-hour time difference, I think. Yeah. So I'm having a great night. Um, I hope you're having a great morning, I think. Yeah, I am. I'm having a great morning, and I'm having a great morning because I'm talking to you. Um, hey! Hey! Likewise. Oh, thank you. I mean, like, like real talk, uh, Andis Productions is kind of what I is kind of what I want my own company to be. It's like, this is a really, like, legit treatment. Hell yeah. Ex- yeah, exactly. Hey, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you, this is great. I'm going to ask you the first question that I ask everyone. My first question is, where do you come from and where are your roots? Cool, cool. Oh, what a fun way of putting that question. Okay, let me think about that. that that's so much more delightful of a phrase than uh, just, where are you from? Okay, um, I'm from Singapore. I'm born and raised. Like, uh, I'm 26 years old right now. All 26 years I've been based in Singapore. And increasingly, I think I realized that I can't take as a given that people know where Singapore is. Um, though crazy rich Asians, I guess, has changed a little bit of that. It has. Yeah. So we're in Southeast Asia. Singapore is, there's a whole bunch of monikers for it. Why have I taken on the task of explaining Singapore? I'm actually kind of <laughs> unsure. Um, but yeah, may- maybe because I think our positionality is sort of figuring out, I say our, um, me and uh, my collaborators at Andas, um, a large part of what we do, I think, is navigating where we stand as kind of English-speaking, English-content-consuming like young people living in Southeast Asia, we're just now finding our voice on a global stage. And, you know, that's one thing. But, you know, in terms of our ears and I guess our eyes, you know, we've been watching and sort of listening to all this content that I think there's been this feeling increasingly like for the first time we, you know, we actually can cross that two-way bridge, which had always felt one way. And uh, I guess to introduce myself and to introduce Andas Productions specifically, like, 
I guess is to say, hey, uh, we're from Singapore, and I think we are trying to figure out how to make stuff that that reaches people the same way that content has reached us. And it's scary, and it's daunting, and uh, it's exhilarating, and that is kind of where we come from. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Okay. So one thing that you sort of mentioned in that was, like, finding your voice. And I just wanted to ask, like, how exactly did you go about finding that voice? Because, I mean, like, that's a that's a big sort of mission statement. Yeah, yeah. Another, another great question. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, when it comes to voice, right, I think one thing that's been interesting about sort of this whole endeavor has been, I think we didn't lead with the company. And we didn't lead with Andal's Productions as an entity. I think it really came from a more granular, reactive kind of impulse to, to make stuff. And I think a lot of this started when a bunch of us met each other in school. I was really, really lucky to have a school pop up right when I was about to go to university uh, in Singapore called Yale and US College. And um, what this was, was um, Yale University and National University of Singapore got talking, had some drinks, had some laughs, um, and then suddenly, like, um, they materialized the school in Singapore where their mission statement was to get like a 50% international student base and 50% local. And that meant that like we had sweet mates from like Mongolia and like Flagstaff and like Phoenix um, mm-hmm. and like all these people in one space. And I think that was kind of an explosive moment for, I think, um, a bunch of us who had been like born and raised in Singapore and others who sort of like were literally flown in for college with no idea what to expect. And I think finding our common language, finding our common interests, sharing stories, and just like realizing we watch the same YouTube video essay channels, whether we're from rural Mongolia or like from central Singapore, like, you know, like, I think that was a pretty powerful moment in terms of just like, we watch and listen to the same stuff. And I think a lot of what my friends and I, and I think the undeniable truth of Anas at this stage is that it is a bunch of friends. And I think that's nothing to be ashamed of. I think like um, professional doesn't preclude intimate and sort of there are two distinct things, but I'm getting sidetracked. Uh, to, to go back to voice, um, I think <laughs> the, the impulse for Andas was sort of, I don't know, maybe, maybe someone else would contest this, but I felt like it very naturally sort of gradually evolved into taking stabs at creating stuff like the stuff we all like. And I think there was a moment where we were doing like a two year long production of Hamlet uh, that was like the school's first ever theatrical um, production of that scale. And I think I was sitting down with the cast and we realized that like, there's like four or five continents represented in our main cast. Not to mention the fact that like, we tried counting countries and it was really hard. We're like, hey, this is a really international production, isn't it? And this is like after two years of work, we had just had that thought, like really for the first time, but like, we had a Filipino, Ophelia, and like a, a Singaporean Chinese, Polonius, yeah, and like a mixed race, Malay, Hamlet. And it was just like, it was crazy. And I think the idea of incidentally just finding that diversity of voice, mm-hmm. just that, that came from us just trying to make something good together. And this is like sophomore year of college. So I think this is like 2016. Yeah, I think we started making choices that snowballed from that in terms of like a um, like Timothy did an audio drama, which was like um, our debut production for Andas, like actually was discussed that same conversation that same night where we were talking about diversity. And I started floating to the cast, like, hey, like three years from now, I might ask you to do a Chinese Han thing. 
would you be interested? And they're like, okay, you write it and we'll take a look at it because it's really hard to imagine what the Chinggisland thing would look like. And I think that was a very valid sentiment on all fronts. But yeah, um, I think I'm sort of warming and inching my way towards answering your question. Which is, <laughs> um, finding our voice was an ongoing process. And, you know, we were lucky enough to have like released Temujin to, and you know, I'm glossing over so much. Uh, and that's okay. I'm it's okay. Cutting oh. myself in the cheek and telling myself it's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, um, I think once we had that, and I think there's that dreaded point where you realize you're gonna have to be able to answer the question, "What are you doing next?" After you spend like four years working on like one thing and trying to get that one thing done well, it was actually in conversation with the vice president of Audible Asia, who is a lovely, lovely person who kind of like took time out of her day to like check in on us and tell us about opportunities and I think she was the first person to say like hey you should make a company so it'll be easier to like get opportunities for yourselves and we we're like what a company that's, that's ridiculous what? and then we started like looking at the websites we we're like oh oh so a company is just you fill out some forms uh you pay like a nominal fee and you just keep doing more or less what you're doing for the foreseeable future and like oh okay so actually a company is just it's just paperwork, you know? And, and we looked at what we were trying to do and, like, the commitments we had and the obligations. And, like, there's a whole conversation we can have about, like, professional duties and responsibilities amongst friends and learning to be diligent about making sure everybody's welfare is attended to, even if you're friends. We're like, okay, we're ready, actually. We have everything we need. We've had the hard conversations. Or we've had many hard conversations. And we intended to keep having more anyway. Uh, let's just go all in. And I think Andas kind of came from us kind of having a week or two of just trying to formalize everything we already believed in and had discovered. And I think it was a sort of chicken and egg effect of like, well, now that we're, now that we know that we're this and we're thinking of this in terms of company uh, and thinking in terms of revenue streams, we could just sit down with an Excel sheet over four hours and go, if we did this thing that we were dreaming of doing, how would we monetize it? And like, how would we pay everybody who needs to be paid? Speaking of which, oh dang, uh, let's start paying people. Like, what, what was that? Like, <laughs> like, drawing up those figures. And like, I think the, the mission with Andas sort of became, how do we take that ethos of Temujin, which was every single person on that team was compensated to the best of our ability to find these uh, numbers, like to pay them full professional wages, mm -hmm. uh, top to bottom, even if they were friends, even if they were like, even if they would have done it as a favor. To tell them, no, you're an actor, and actors uh, need to be compensated for their hours, and that felt good, you know. And we we reached the finish line with that, and I think now we're like, can we make a process of this? Can we make like continuing to do like projects we believe in, looking at funding avenues, just kind of like charting that out? And I think the more I'm gonna wrap up this answer soon, um, <laughs> it's been a while, but yeah, because <laughs> the big question is what's my voice? When it comes to finding our voice, I think with Anta so far, it really has been a matter of going all in on projects and stories that we like completely believed in. And, you know, Temujin was absolutely that. Every single person on the team, you know, they, they, they put their everything into it. They, you know, watched documentaries, read books. They, they went like above and beyond um, what any of us needed to do. Because I think the story reflected the sort of stories we love to watch and read and listen to. And I think that's at the heart of it for us in terms of our voice is, is we're trying to like hold a mirror up to what we see and what we love. And yeah, I have so many thoughts about like how that fits into like audio fiction as a medium and 
uh, the idea of fashion projects, but I really just want to let you ask the questions. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So that gave me, your answer gave me a lot of like sort of spinoff side note questions and we're going to get to all of them. Beautiful. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Glorious, resplendent. So one of the first ones Mm. that I am going to ask about is that, uh, that budget uh, that you mentioned, like how, how you budget out and like figure out how to pay people. How do you budget out and figure out how much your production should cost and pay people? Cause like Temujin sounded fantastic. And I'm really, am curious, like how did you come about like finding the budget to make it sound and, and like be as well acted and well paid as you did? So I think the key thing with that was, um, I think budgets can be really intimidating, right? And you mentioned that like you have a company yourself and mm-hmm. you're immersed in this version, this creative stuff. And like, we are literally on your show right now. Um, <laughs> so like, it's, there's an intimidation factor to it, isn't there? Like when you sit down and you think about the money. Yes. Um, and there's like two warring impulses. Like there's a part of you that's like, I want my show to like sound big budget. And and I want to be able to pay people as much as they deserve because almost always, yeah, I've, li- I've yet to listen to an audio show where I felt like people were phoning it in for the most part. It's very rare, actually. I think almost always like people are giving it their best. Yeah, it's the passion you can tell. Yeah, and you know, you, you want to compensate that. Um, and I think the, the difficulty is like, and what you keep hearing, what we all keep hearing is like the, the trouble monetizing, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. the man cannot live on ad sponsorships alone, <laughs> quote unquote. But like, I think with Timogen, we wanted to try to take a commonsensical approach and it helped in some ways that we were really naive at the start of it. We didn't choose audio fiction as a medium thinking, of audio fiction as a space or a culture or a community, just frankly because I hadn't encountered it yet personally, and not many of us had. I'd listened to audio shows. I'd listened to Peter and the Wolf growing up. I listened to um, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide by the BBC, um, a couple of audio plays, and I, I think I was kind of like, I was operating in that kind of ideal sort of platonic space of what would it take to make an audio thing? And since then, I think. Like, um, you have, you have phenomenal resources, like, um, who is it? I think Tal came up with the budgeting for audio articles. Recently. Yeah, yeah, they did, and yeah. That was amazing. I wish that that was around, like, three years ago. <laughs> and so, like, if I were answering this question now, in terms of what I know now, I would immediately link someone to that article. But in, I think, because your question was, how did we do it? I think what we did was we sat down with an Excel sheet and we said, like, okay, first off, let's just put down every person that we know we would need. And I think... The commonsensical element of it is something that, like, it's really easy to take for granted. The act of sitting down and going, okay, let's just break it down. To go, like, marketing. What does marketing actually mean? Because a lot of the time, you're tempted to just sort of throw marketing in and put down, yeah, like, 1.5K for marketing. Yeah, that sounds about right. But, like, that's <laughs> one thing, right? And another thing is, like, what does it actually mean? Okay, it probably means, like, um, maybe two two splash posters that we're really proud of. We can repurpose posters to, like, thumbnails for this is this well would we need a third thumbnail with a fair rate to pay artists for each thing what are they typically paid let's go like talk to artists that we know and uh then the marketing budget doesn't become a marketing budget it's just like your two posters an animated trailer and so on budget you know and when you break it down enough like that or like calculate like exactly how many hours you intend to call in each actor uh when and you sort of are able to assure them that you're not going to ask them to come in more than that um, and you start making decisions like that at a really, really early stage, and you just kind of fill that Excel sheet all the way up uh, with like micro, micro, micro details. 
I think you end up being able to get a pretty good estimate for like what the value of the money actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really intimidating when you think of it in terms of thirty percent of your budget should go to the sound designer, <laughs> and you know, like it's that's one thing. But the other is like going up to your sound designer and like talking to them, going like, um, "What's life for you? Like, what's life like for you right now? What sort of jobs are you getting? Where do you want to be at in terms of your professional income?" And uh, then looking at what we're able to offer, um, I think was kind of how we approached a lot of these difficult conversations, and I think. Coming at it from a place where you're telling these people that a, you want to pay them, you want this work to feel comfortable because the work will be hard. So like um, and then sort of having these long discussions right at the start, where you've given them both exactly what their duties are, exactly how long you think it will take. You know, and when everybody feels comfortable that way, I think that's kind of what the importance of the budget is right at the start, because um, especially within the realm of audio, I find that like um. People aren't doing this to find excess. They're not doing this to like, you know, to like uh, completely smash open their bank accounts and like go wild with spending. There. Yeah, buy a house in the Hamptons. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, I think it's it's often a matter of comfort. Uh, and you can say one k to one sound designer and one k to another sound designer, and have it just mean sort of like absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. But if you're able to communicate a job scope, a working environment, and um, you're able to ask them for their input and make sure that they're heard before any sort of forward progression happens. I think that's what our budget making process was right at the start. Um, and then we did crowdfund, and thankfully, like um, uh, the crowdfunding I think exceeded my personal expectations. Like uh, we we budgeted for nine k, and I think we got ten point three. Oh. Uh yeah, I I was kind of shocked by that. Not, not shocked. Like, for the three or so of us who were running it, it, it was some of the hardest work we've ever done. And we made a bunch of mistakes in terms of just things that we couldn't have known. But, like, we still came through. And we were still okay because at every step, I think, we were just asking people much, much smarter than us what they would do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sort of course correcting very gradually. For instance, uh, a quick one. Uh, at the start of our Kickstarter campaign, we were really focused on sort of uh, releasing stuff like uh, behind-the-scenes footage, you know, actor screen tests, um, more about the history and the real stories that inspired it. And there was a comment by my older sister where she said that, you know, like, this stuff is going to be really, really great for fans of the show 10 years from now. But who are you trying to attract to, like, give you funding? And really think about that. And I think I said, like, probably the person scrolling through Facebook. And she said, what have you given? Like, what catches your eye on Facebook? Um, is it behind the scenes things for a story you've never heard of? Um, and I think that's kind of what got us thinking about um, how to sell a story and what it means. I think what the difference is between just telling a story well and selling it. And I think that was a moment that my idea of a great story sells itself kind of fizzled out. I still believe that like great stories are easier to sell or that like if you believe in it at the very least, like it's easier for you to tell someone else why they should believe in it. But I think that like halfway through our campaign, we, we like did some real deep soul searching and that's where the animated trailer came from and that's where like a lot of our sort of like workshopping log lines and coming up with that press kit on our website came from. It was just like I think thinking about our audience in terms of just like the bored, the disinterested and the apathetic person who we want to like warm them up inside and give them that feeling of life. And like I think that's been a really gentle and kind of like 
really fulfilling way to look at it is like how do you in telling someone about the thing like lift their spirits a bit and i think that uh so yeah your question was about budgeting and i'll say that like <laughs> yeah i think the, the heart the heart of our budgeting sorry i'm really trying <laughs> um <laughs> no okay this is good stuff yeah um at the heart of our budgeting i think is a the idea that we like we we really gun for comfort levels for every single person in our team and we don't settle for anything less than that and b i think it's like um crowdfunding has worked so far um i think certainly for audio drama it, it can be really exciting it can be really difficult and scary and stressful but like um when it works well and we were lucky that it worked well for us yeah i think it's it's a really viable way because you have full ownership of the um of that money and how it is released and how it is spent so like the exciting thing there practically was that we were able to pay everybody the day of release the day like the funding came in we just like because i've worked on projects before where, like four months after the money was contracted to go out like i was still sending emails going like any updates mm-hmm. and there was a slight retributive sort of haha when we were like you know, <laughs> Your money goes out immediately, <laughs> even if it's thousands of dollars, because why shouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, to wrap up my answer, I think there's a bit of a thrill to handling budgets for entire productions and making sure nobody has to wait any longer than is absolutely necessary. Okay. I'm actually going to go back to something that you brought up in your last answer. I'm going to ask you to expand on it. So you were talking about how like, you learned sort of how to sell a show. And how it sort of focuses on like warming up someone inside. I, I just want you to expand on that concept and just be more detailed with it. Like, how do you sell a show? Beautiful. Okay, so I have a fun anecdote to that actually, and I think it ties back into Singapore as an entity because something bizarre happened while we were working on Temujin in that the Walt Disney Corporation decided that now is the time for Singapore. Now is the time for Southeast Asia, and you know they were working in Raya at the same time and. You know, there's a very cynical possible answer where you could say that, like, there's an emerging market of English speakers or whatever. But the point of this anecdote is that they held this thing where they invited, like, 30 to 40, like, Academy Award winning, BAFTA Award winning Disney top talent to fly down to Singapore for, like, three days and hold, like, a closed door workshop on a whole bunch of stuff. And a couple of us from the Temujin team were lucky enough to sort of, like, get into that. And it was mostly like 40 to 50 year olds, like professionals who've been doing this their whole lives. And then like us babies. And I think our whole thing was that we were like front row in like every single workshop trying to be the good students, like soaking up knowledge and like, like talking to the senpais and going like, hey, um, we're we're trying to do stuff. And like, um, I think there was one thing that Roy Conley, I think, and he produced like Big Hero 6 and like Angles, um, and a whole bunch of stuff, and he was giving us advice on how Disney approaches this question. He said that whenever Disney conceives of a story, um, one last thing is that like he's also like part of, I think it's called Disney Story Trust. And like there's this fixed interval. I think it's once a year, like a whole bunch of people from Disney, their top brass, sit down in like a log cabin, and talk about the next movies coming up and like whether or not they fit the Disney brand. And he was talking about like the metrics they use there. So apart from just, like, the standard beginning, middle, end stuff, he was saying that, like, you think about the world of the story. So, like, in all marketing material, in all mentions of the story, is there a clear world being sort of shown to the viewer that they can imagine themselves being a part of? Something vivid, something real, and something rich. 
So the world is the first thing. I think the second thing is, I think it was character. So his thing was that you should be able to immediately sort of get a sense of who these people are and what they want. Um, so if you imagine like a poster for something, even like um, like Soul, right? Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting one. I think the post, one of the big posters for that was like um, our melancholy lead character, sort of like looking off to the side as this abstract art behind him and this kind of blue drenched thing, which is very blue, sort of a moody and vibrant thing. And he's kind of looking reflective. And what, what um, they were telling us that Disney does is like, that poster is simultaneously selling you the world of the thing as being this sort of fantastical but grounded. Uh, they're selling you the character, this person who's going through a moment of like existential crisis in a very literal way. And tone, I think tone was the final one. And I think tone and theme are kind of wrapped up there, which is like, you should know what the story is about. And just by the look in that guy's face, like you know this is a story about coming to terms with very difficult things. So he was saying that like, if you can convey all those things like even visually, right? Even without words, then you sold someone the story. You, you sort of you tap on a story that you're able to communicate instantly. A world that someone should feel like they're a part of, a clear character, and a theme that kind of is resonant. And I think the, the word that people use is universal, but I have hang-ups with the word universal, uh, so I use it sparingly, mm-hmm. uh, just because of colonialism and all that stuff. But um, <laughs> oops. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I find that very compelling. And I think we, with Temujin, we were very, very careful about like world, character, and theme uh, when we were like doing trailers, doing posters. Like, for instance, there's that, there's that poster where, like, where it's like um, the two of them are like in the forest. Oh, with uh, the deer. And, bow, and there's this. With the deer, yeah, exactly. And that poster was our attempt at meeting this test selling the world, selling the characters and the theme of the thing. So I think world is kind of clear that uh, you have the lushness of sort of this forest. Um, you have a very natural environment and something which has sort of um, got a tinge of mystery to it. And there's a whole monologue about that in like act two, but like characters, I think capturing the intimacy of it and the violence. So the idea of two people almost hugging, but the thing that they're holding is this instrument of killing with a sort of the looming sort of tone of like the deer in the background sort of like alluding to like the overall theme of like the death of innocence mm-hmm. in, in, in friendship. That is something that we took very seriously and like moving forward, like hopefully everything that Andas does, you should be able to break down any of our posters that way. And if we haven't arrived at that, then we've done something uh, not quite right. But like, yeah, I think how you tell the story, I would say like those are the three things we think about. That's very helpful. I, mean, I was going through my own stuff in my own head, wondering like, does this check all the boxes? So thanks for that. Um, no sweat. Um, not rules. Just just a checklist, right? Like a checklist, um, guidelines. Yeah. Suggestions. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it just the, the core issue is like, um, can somebody feel what you're selling? And those three things are only helpful because there are ways we can think about what somebody else is feeling. Mm. The actual checklist items don't matter. Um, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Even if they don't hit all the checklists, it doesn't mean that you're like not making good art or selling your show. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a sort of general question about like what you and uh, your co-founder Isabel Perucho. I feel like I'm saying her last name wrong, but I don't know. All right. Oh, uh, no, perfect, Perucho. Sweet, yeah. wonderful, nice. Um, but here's just sort of a general question about like you guys and like your work with Andes Production. So, like, you sort of talk about how these things are sort of passion projects for you, and. I kind of just want to hear more about how you sort of 
go about monetizing your passion project. Cause I know for some people that can be a difficult mm. thing to do. Cause it's like, how can I properly put a price tag on something that I deeply care about like this? But, so I just want to hear your perspective. That is such a brilliant question. Okay, cool. Um, and I know that's a very heated thing. So I think I'll caveat that like everything that I say as, you know, as it pertains to like our personal philosophies is not a rule of thumb. There are no rules of thumb, but I still feel like I need to say it. Like I said, a lot of this started from like thinking about content that we love. And given that we're operating, I'm trying to find the best way to talk about the post-coloniality of being in Singapore. And maybe the best way is just saying it. What we get is a lot of American content and a lot of British content from like the majority white English-speaking world. And I think the stuff that reaches us, you, you can't avoid the artifice of it and the commerciality of it. You know, I think past a certain point, even the commerciality is, is art. You know, like the, the question of how do you wind up telling a story in such a way that Kylo Ren's face is on all of our buses for three years? You know, what, what quality of a story creates that? I think to me, like, there is such an art, such a profound art to coming up with a story that is great by your personal standards. And that resonates with the mass audience. And I think that, that I think that that's a noble goal because the stuff that reaches a mass audience and audiences that you couldn't have imagined possibly re- re- reaching when you made the thing is how this stuff reached us. Because I can guarantee you that as a Punjabi first generation Singaporean cis male, I'm not the target audience for anybody. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> thought of me and went, that's the guy. That's him. We gotta reach him. You know, but they, they reached they reached us anyway. They reached like me and Isabel anyway. Like Isabel's like first generation Singaporean Filipino. Like I mean, there's an art to it, um, and I think that the kind of art that that Isabel and I have found ourselves drawn to is the art that that's heavy. You know, that's scrappy. That not only has a great story to tell, but will help you care about it. It'll make it easy for you to care about it. And my kind of belief in an earnest ideals way is that that art is commercial because I think like or that has a very close link to commerciality um I don't think commercial is a dirty word but I think the pursuit of money as an end goal in art making is just not the way to go 100% but the pursuit of reaching you know a wide audience is sometimes given a kind of dirty kind of like that's not high art but like I think that's very often the art that shapes us. I do feel that it's a bit disingenuous to lessen that. Because I think of like Prince of Egypt. My God, that movie was formative. <laughs> and I, I consider it high art. You know, <laughs> whatever anybody says. But at the same time, like that, that movie, like it, it did also sell toys. You know, it also moved merchandise. It did everything it had to do, you know? And, uh, and it told a great story while doing and I think that's kind of, yeah, that's noble. I'm, I'm actually going to kind of kind of switch gears here. So on March 23rd, you mentioned, it was either you or the NS Productions Twitter page, but someone mentioned the fact that you're developing an original audio series that's aimed for 22 to 23, an audio adaptation of an uh, Eisner-winning comic, which is also coming out between 22 to 23, and a 2D action video game, which we're going to talk more about, but that's aiming for a 24... <laughs> 2425 release. So I just want to kind of want to kind of know like what's the process of developing these productions in like a post 
Temujin world where like you know different stuff and you have different connections because it was so popular and successful and like how are you balancing it with time management and how has the pandemic affected your development process as well? You're the first person to have asked any of that and it's yeah no it's quite wow I'm, I'm, I'm a bit thank you thank you for asking. You're welcome. Is all I can think. Okay yes so that is our slate. We've actually got one more thing in there that we've not announced, but I can tell you that it just came up. Uh, we're making a fantasy show. Oh! We started developing that, and we've done writers' rooms. So there are three audio series in the week, in the works at the moment. Then there's um, uh, one that we did through like an audible development thing, and that one's more sort of like more in line with Tenjin, mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of it's partially historical drama esque, and that one is like a pre-colonial Singapore. There's this poet who was like the first Malay poet um, ever to release his stuff commercially as a book. And he documented the arrival of the English and how he tried to make his fortunes by um, making use of the British's presence. And he's kind of regarded in equal parts as one of our region's kind of greatest folk heroes and like a sellout. <laughs> so I think we were going to do a story about what it was like being in Singapore at that time, where he takes on like a mentorship role to a protagonist who's like this this young female uh, printing press worker who's looking for a way out of Singapore. And there's this old man who's like the steward of the British, great folk hero, uh, living his last days in like an increasingly sort of colonized Singapore. Uh, but yeah, that, that was one. Uh, the second one was the uh, adaptation, right? And the adaptation is interesting because we've been working on a like a, a business model for Andas and thinking through what as audio companies uh, we offer as a service. And I think, uh, like, like we were just talking about earlier, we don't see commerciality as a sin in itself. Mm-hmm. So I think we've been looking for ways that align with our ethics but also provide a service. And one thing that came to mind is like uh, adaptation because looking at the TV industry at the moment, and through some of my initial work, sort of like um, getting commissioned to work on shows with like mega conglomerates who have like, who like buy up uh, a lot of IP, but then don't know what to do with them. Or like the pandemic kind of slows all that stuff down. Uh, we realized that we actually have something of uh, value to offer by sort of going up to them and going like, um, hey, so we know that you have the rights to this novel. We know that you're not able to do anything yet. But if you're interested in working with us on sort of making an audio adjacent thing, and we'll build awareness of that thing that you bought and increase its value for like a fraction of whatever your marketing budget was going to be, then you end up having more valuable IP. And given our track record, we'll give you something creatively excellent. So that was kind of like our initial value offer was like um, going up to TV right holders and kind of going like, um, hey, looking at that marketing budget, can we help you out? <laughs> sort of the, the, this project... I was kind of lucky that like it was both that and it's something I'm a huge fan of as well. And it's at that stage where like I'm like 50-50 on if I'm... Because we've been told to work on it. I've been told we're working on it. And I've been talking to the author, so I feel like everything is like good. But at the same time, I've also got this increasing fear ever since the end of Temujin and like now that we've actually started working on multiple projects that like any project can when you're working with other people and there are, there are stakeholders involved any project can end at any time you know and that that's kind of a bummer so I kind of have that attitude for certainly this project because there's so much else at stake 
but yeah, it's another one where I, I really, I hope we can make it because I feel like we found a way to do something intimate and fantastical, which is supposed to be our goal. Um, <laughs> uh, Andat is supposed to be engaging, intimate, and awe-inspiring in terms of our, our projects, where uh, they should feel like there should be a sense of humor to all of them. Uh, there should be an attentiveness to small moments in all of them. But they should all make you feel like life is large and the world is beautiful. And that life has meaning in a grand way after having listened to them. Prince of Egypt is honestly, like, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say, like, that's an example of a movie that to me hit, like, all three of those marks. Um, mm. But moving on, <laughs> that was the comic. And so my response to the comic is just, God, I hope that this continues along and we're able to make the show. But yeah, that's all the audio shows. 15 years from now, I know exactly what I would want to do to follow up to Imogen, mm-hmm. but I've told myself that we must, we must move on <laughs> and do other things before I allow myself and ourselves to finish that story. There was always meant to be a part two to it, but I think we have to get older to tell the story of people getting older. Ah uh-uh, I told you there'd be a cliffhanger. So make sure to come back next week to hear about the future plans for Temujin. But while you wait for that, let me read off these credits. On Their Way was created, hosted, and edited by me, Jade Madison Scott. The theme was composed by Baggio Alvarado, and the logo was created by Amaka Corey. If you'd like to help us continue to make podcasts like On Their Way or other show Retribution, you can support us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. In addition to helping us pay for a crew and overhead, you'd also get early access to episodes and exclusive content. You can find the link on our website, wgcproductions.com. You can also show us some love by following us at With Good Co on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and telling your friends about us. As always, I appreciate you for listening, and please take care of yourselves and each other.